Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, first of all, welcome. Second of all, be sure to check out all the content we put out onto the internet. Follow me on Twitter, which is at Focus Compound. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. And if you are listening to us on Spotify or iTunes or whatever other podcast app you listen to podcasts on, uh, be sure to check out all of our content. You can go to focuscompounding.com. Jeffrey Gannon actually wrote up a piece for Focus Compounding uh, that was uploaded yesterday. Didn't you, Jeff? Mm-hmm. And you could get access to that if you go to focuscompounding.com. And you do have to become a member, which I am not signed in. Um, but your title was Don't Just Over Maximize One Variable, Find Stocks That Tick a Lot of Boxes at Once. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell the overall theme of this article? Um, I guess the title pretty much yeah, says the title it pretty good, covers right? It, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So it just talks about uh, because we were at the Willow Oak event and you were asking questions of the panel. I was on the panel there. And uh, one of them was what. Uh, do we wish that we'd learned earlier, whatever. Actually, it wasn't your question specifically. It was actually a question for the audience, right? Wasn't it? I believe so, yeah. yeah. Um, well, there was a question for the audience about that. I think that's when I brought it up. But um, And so I just talked about like not buying something that's necessarily the very lowest PE or the highest growth or the whatever uh, it might be, but instead looking for uh, stocks that have a few different things working together for them. Uh, because people seem to be most interested in, like, say, value stocks, right? The cheapest. Mm-hmm. So they want that 5P instead of 7 or, or whatever. And that's kind of what the article's about. So instead of buying, like, the 7P that also may have a great business right. attached to it, people convince themselves of, but this 4PE, it's just right. so dang cheap. Mm-hmm. And you had said that if you could change one thing about what you have done throughout your career mm-hmm. is don't just focus extremely on one variable. Right. Sort of find a company that has both things going for it. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about that with value stocks and just saying like in general that if everything that you buy is maybe, um, you know, say uh, 12P or lower or something, right? Then you're a value investor just by the doing that and so you can spend the rest of your time finding the best stocks that are at those prices rather than necessarily having to look at a screen for the the very cheapest or something because sometimes people ask questions about like the magic formula or something that kind of thing isn't really my favorite for that very reason um people kind of cherry pick from it and they do it based on like what has the very highest return on equity what has the very lowest pe things like that that's sort of been a known thing as well right that the people that have not had success with the magical formula it's been because they cherry pick which companies to buy and joel greenbaugh was like you can't do that you need to just kind of shock on it and mm-hmm. keep like a you know systemized approach to picking the stocks basically i think he said like hold them for a year and then you just reshuffle the deck yeah i think that makes sense i think from like a uh i talked a little bit in that article about like a you know quant type things um, that kind of stuff uh, works for that. Of course, Buffett's approach is kind of magic formula, but basing it on trying to judge whether there's a moat and buying only those. So it really does approximate, I think, how Buffett approaches stocks. It's just that it's a diversified, quantified approach instead of um, 
you know, his focus on by actually analyzing the business. I would love to hear if there's an investor listening that has followed the magical formula for their own personal investing and have not used it from the perspective of just trying to cherry pick ideas. So mm -hmm. if you truly followed it the way that Joel Greenblatt laid out the rules, I would love to hear how your results have been and what your experience has been. And uh, that would be interesting to hear about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you had to guess, what would you say? I don't think many people have done it. Uh, I know that it had some years that weren't so great versus the S&P for people. So that's part of the difficulty. Um, it's sort of like with net nets. I feel the same way. Um, where we tried to uh, come up with lists. And then what would happen is I don't really like using those lists because then people would pick out certain ones that they like the best. Um, a lot of times they pick up either with the magic formula, I think, or with um, net nets, they pick ones that they think have the most upside or that they think is the time is the right time to buy them or something like that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So in today's podcast, uh, we are continuing on. This will be, we're going to aim for an hour and a half. People okay. like the longer form podcast. Uh, what I'm going to start doing is just kind of put together um, just a little slideshow of things that I thought oh, okay. I want to go over on the podcast and use it um, for the show. And we're going to always hit on the markets and okay. then we'll do a topic and then try to connect with our listeners by going over emails. So if you want okay. to email me and you have a question, email me at andrew at focuscompounding.com and just in the subject line put podcast, and then I will group it and sift through a few uh, to go over on the show. And I think it's great because it's easier to uh, really just go deeper on some ideas as opposed to tweets and stuff like that. So where we sit today, today is May 17th, 2022. The market is down 15% year to date. I think last time we recorded, uh, it was down maybe 17%. So we are we are officially traders. Now, Jeff, talking about short-term <laughs> market movements. The 10-year yield is still basically right where we yep. recorded last week at 2.948%. Um, the one thing that's kind of caught my eyes recently as well, and a lot probably because we've spoken a lot about Buffett buying Oxy, yeah, Occidental. Uh, crude oil is at $114 per barrel. Mm. And natural gas... That's been the biggest move, uh, is at $8.23 as we in the this. U.S. than in other countries, actually. In other countries, it's like, it's what, bigger. $60 or something crazy like that? It's, it's a lot, and the move has been much bigger in other countries. It's, uh, But still, it's up almost 100% from, you know, um, uh, actually, Basically when, you asked, date, right? when you asked a question on an earnings call, of a company saying what would happen if natural gas doubled or something. It's basically about doubled from there, yeah. uh, you know, the end of la their fit last fiscal year. Um, so, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, so we spoke a little bit about last week how Occidental on the earnings conference call, they're talking a lot about capital allocation. Mm -hmm. You think that's probably the main thesis for Buffett buying into the company. I've listened to a lot of other oil companies they're all speaking about capital allocation. It's all about, no, we're going to buy back our stock and pay a dividend. Mm -hmm. I think oil prices could be here for some time. I think a lot of oil, and this is just my opinion, I think a lot of oil companies are worried about their terminal value, right? Because right. of ESG, because of the decline, because of the switch to renewable energy over the next you know, 10 to 15 years. Yeah. So I just wonder if they're going to be more reluctant to spend all that capital to go in increase production, do all those different things. And yeah. this time around, focus more on capital allocation, which could keep 
prices up. I mean, at some point, I do think greed will take over and they will go and put capital to work. But to your point about Occidental and Buffett's thesis, and to my point, after listening to a decent amount of conference calls, it seems like a lot more management teams are focused on capital allocation this time around. Mm -hmm. So I thought that's kind of interesting. I was looking at the rig count and you could see, I mean, just we talk about, so I'm planning a podcast. Okay that we're gonna do on consolidation mm-hmm. and just go over like the railroad industry and all these different industries and how they all start out and then how they are in the present when the industry becomes much more settled. Like I found this cool chart that I wanted to show that shows like the scaling chart and then like when consolidation starts to happen and really when we start to focus on the companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it'd be cool to do a podcast on that, but like rig counts have declined over time. Like you could see from like a long-term trend, the consolidation in the industry, and this is nothing groundbreaking or new, but I think higher oil prices, I don't know, but I think higher oil and gas prices are probably going to be around for longer than people think this time around. I think we're in sort of a secular bull market in that market. Maybe there hasn't been a lot of um, growth in the supply things in the United States, certainly, and there's some, growth in uh, when we're talking about natural gas and things like that and export and demands from other places. So it's possible so far. That's been true. You know, we'll see if that changes, but uh, yeah, no, the price increases basically you had inflation. So you had like money supply growth and speculation based on that, but then you had supply not come in a, in a big supply growth. It hasn't really been a surprise in demand. So, and then you have everything going on overseas, which I guess, uh, leads the market to be less certain i would say they're pricing in a lot of different things yeah yeah that's a possibility um so you wanted to talk about berkshire's 13f that just came out recently we're on data roma for people watching on the screen and for some of these things we may know additional information that isn't captured by this filing because the filing date is for the end of March, correct? Yep. So sometimes you might know more about it because he passed some threshold with a company or something like that. So more information has been revealed since then. Like we probably know he has to own more Activision than I think it shows there mm-hmm. because uh, maybe. I'm not sure about that actually. Five but billion? Yeah, he owns just under 10% of the company, right? So. I think that the filing isn't up to date on that. But uh, so you see, for instance, Chevron. So Chevron's even a much bigger position than Occidental. 25.9 billion. Yeah. Obviously, he likes the oil things with both Chevron and Occidental. Um, Chevron's not a new position, but it's a huge increase. So it's effectively like having a new position, you know, in terms of how much he bought. Um, What I meant with Occidental about the, the... capital allocation plans is really that he had owned Occidental before. And so why did he go back into it and everything? I think that that specifically was something that he thought about. Um, Capital allocation, which he often does, you know, uh, that's often his reason for why he buys the stock at that moment. But obviously he follows these things and has an opinion about um, prices, you know. Yeah, it's still not back up to its... 2011 high of $109 per share. We're at $67 today. Yeah, and a lot's changed with the company since then, obviously. But I think part of it is, you know, it wasn't a very popular deal that Buffett um, helps finance and everything. So He knows the company well. He's been involved Mm -hmm. with the company for some time. Yeah. And do you think it's just he's betting basically on higher oil oil prices and 
capital I think he's long well. thought that oil prices would be higher in the long run um, and there'd be a lot more free cash flow than people thought. He's kind of said that, you know, when he's talked about it, he doesn't know exactly what the price will be, but, you know, he thinks there'll be a lot of profit in some of the last barrels of oil taken out. Um, it's very hard to predict industry, like even where you were saying that they might be concerned about their terminal value and everything. The irony with that is if the industry as a whole behave each individual company behaves that way then actually you end up causing that transition faster because of <laughs> yeah. course you drive up prices to make them less competitive mm -hmm. um and people become concerned about it you have much more um conservation you have all sorts of things if you have uh, oil prices that high whereas if you manage to keep them lower um but not too low uh you'd be better off in the long run that way so is there anything else from the 13f that stood out to you Oh yeah, there's several other ones. So we know about some of them because he said it, or we kind of heard about it before. But um, there's a so definitely one we've talked about entertainment stocks. Um, it's very interesting that they bought a huge amount as a percentage of the company of of uh, Paramount. Paramount, that was, yeah, uh, that was in so that's Viacom CBS is its former name, um, and of course those two companies split apart at one time and then came back together and all of that, and uh, they had a different name, but they've renamed recently because they have paramount plus as the name of their streaming service so i think that's why they chose to rename it after the movie studio which is not really the biggest part of the company um it's cbs and viacom so the cable networks of viacom with with cbs the um uh us tv network um as well as actually own tv stations too and um the paramount plus is the streaming services name and paramount is the movie studio's name obviously it's a major movie studio we talked about it it's just a bit smaller than the very biggest major so it's almost kind of the smallest of the major movie studios at this point and then it has the streaming service which is you know we'll see it is a question of whether it ends up having enough scale over time it's one of those that we talked about that we're not as sure as like netflix and hbo the and disney plus are the ones that you're sure about the ones you aren't sure about are paramount peacock and ones like that and sony had one and they they don't anymore do you think this is buffett it's interesting. I think it's of a size that it might not be Buffett. Yeah, because it looks like, what is it, 2.6 billion? Right, but that's huge then if it's not Buffett. So, right, the two of them together managing, what, maybe 30 billion? Do we have an idea of exactly how many, how much they're managing? If I had to guess, I would say, yeah, about that. Okay, so... The, combined between the two. Right, so say it's one person doing the buying. So, you know, combined, each of them might be managing around 15 billion you know, less than 20 billion, let's say one person. This is a purchase of what, over 2 billion? A yeah, over 2.6. 2 so more than 10% of one person's portfolio? You know, probably. I think it's very possible it's someone else, that it's not Buffett. But we don't know that. But if it's someone who isn't Buffett, if it's um, uh, Todd or Ted, then it's a very large purchase for them. And uh, they don't have a lot that are above that. You can see that what of those above it are probably not Buffett. They're very few. Mm -hmm. Most of them we know probably are bought, or I would guess are Buffett. Davida's not, right? Yeah, Davida Healthcare Partners. Right, which is a huge position. HPQ, you think that's Buffett as well? It seems more like Buffett, to be honest. And it also seems like Buffett for, but, but it, you know, who knows? It might not be, but I, I always thought that was probably Buffett. But we've known about it for a little while. What about Amazon? Who owns Amazon? If you had that's guess? not Buffett. Ted? <laughs> Todd? Snowflake's not Buffett, you know. Um, most everything below there isn't Buffett, I would guess. He's not Charter, he's not Liberty, not Visa, so none of those. Um, sometimes it's interesting to look and think, well, could he 
could we be secretly maybe started buying? And we wouldn't really know. Um, but I don't think so. I think that what we're seeing above that is is not. There's some where I've never known. Kroger is a good example. We've seen Kroger for a while and stuff. Who knows? It's kind of like it's too small. It's it's too small for Buffett probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then it's a very large purchase for someone else. But was it ever possibly going to be an even bigger amount? I don't know. But it's a pretty big part of the company. So those are all interesting. Um, Activision we know was not Buffett originally and then it is Buffett now as an arbitrage thing. Citigroup, which we didn't talk about yet, presumably that's Buffett, but we don't know that the others don't buy financial things. It's just that that is probably Buffett. And Berkshire has an own city before. I think financials are a good play in the, current, in the current market. City's incredibly cheap. Yeah, I was going to say, I was looking at a lot of them. I'm like, <laughs> okay, so financials have gone slaughtered through the recent downturn as well. We're talking about the two down. cheapest industries right yeah. now. And uh, financials and energy of the And it's become piece. nothing but a better industry for them. I mean, now presumably people will say, well, if there's a recession, that's not good for banks. And I get right. that, but and they, they could be it, that they're pretty damn cheap. People could be worried that oil prices will come down a lot. They could be worried that um, yield curve will invert and things like that. So there could be real good cyclical reasons why they don't like financials and um, energy. They are, however, the two cheapest um it's we haven't groups. spoken about this but like i've i've said i mean we're not traders but i it's been surprising to me the price and energy a lot of energy related things and the price of a lot of financial related things that have gotten brought down right. through the recent downturn now part of that though as you've seen even in some stocks that we own and stuff is actually not due to the prices coming down it's due to the earnings going up quite a bit without much gains in prices beyond what other uh, groups are earning. So that's, whereas like if you compare that to um, consumer things, right? So like some consumer stocks are probably the most expensive groups, but it's not just that their prices went up a lot. Obviously tech things had their prices go up even more in a lot of cases. It's also that their earnings didn't go up that much during COVID and all that, you know? So if you were something that went up a lot during COVID, your earnings, and that has, you know, actually even more recently, some some financial things, their earnings have gone up a bunch. Certainly energy things, they've gone up a lot. And so it's easier for them to end up with really low multiples. Also, they've just averaged lower multiples for a very long time, as you know. Uh, energy and financials have both been some of the cheaper groups for probably the last decade. And they continue to be, even when their earnings growth is higher than other uh, groups now. Mm-hmm. So Citigroup, uh, we have it up on the screen on mm-hmm. QuickFS. Terrible long-term results since the crisis for them. Their returns, you know, barely grows. The return equity has been poor. They've Now they have disposed of some things. So that kind of makes their growth misleading that way. And it's not as U.S. focused as what Berkshire and certainly Buffett normally focuses on. Buffett's investments, especially in financial stuff, is very U.S. focused. Um, and Citigroup is not so much U.S. focused. On the big financial companies, it's the least U.S. focused, really. If we put aside things like the, um, you know, we don't count things like American Express and the, um, you know, other uh, companies in that group. Berkshire actually owns a lot of American Express. Um, so putting those aside, just looking at big banks, they do a lot that's outside the U.S. Um, and they have pretty weak sort of like U.S. retail presence and stuff compared to the other kind of companies that Buffett would buy into. So we don't know it's Buffett, um, but if it's not Buffett, it's a pretty big purchase from someone else. And we haven't really seen a lot of financial purchases from others. There also is an insurer bought in small amount too, right? Markel, 
mm-hmm. appears on there. Um, so from time to time, you might see other things. I thought Markel did, but I might be wrong. Yep, you're right though. Yeah. So ally, that definitely seems like something that might not be Buffett. That seems of like the size and all that. That's not. You We've know. gotten asked about that company a few times, haven't we? Yes. Mm-hmm. Floor and decor. Someone's up in it, but still. I mean, that's not Buffett. Three hundred eighty-seven million. Yeah. So the answer. I mean, I just the city stood out to me because we don't. It's either a very big purchase by someone that isn't Buffett, and they're about complete with it, right? So what's the dollar value of it at this point? Two point nine billion. Right. And what's City's market cap? For, well, for this is us? yeah. Um, City's market cap. 92 billion okay so yeah and so you could buy about 9 billion worth of it at current prices if you're a berkshire it's not doesn't pose a problem as long as you don't go over 10 percent um and if we look at the business description let's see what the share turnover is yeah 330 mm-hmm. percent. and i think it would not be hard to buy a lot of it so it easily could be something where you're capturing a very early part of them buying into it and that they intend to buy a lot of it um he also finally officially got rid of the last of the wells fargo and there's been other things. Let's see, what else did they sell? Um, Verizon? That was, yeah, we don't know. That definitely could have been Buffett. I have never known who that was. Some of these I wonder because I wonder like if they were intended to be larger. Mm-hmm. They make some sense if they were possibly. I don't have a good feel for the other two portfolios outside of some of the very biggest positions we've known about for a long time. Um, but City could obviously become larger if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Berkshire could buy a lot more of it, and it could be a meaningful position. Whereas, like Kroger is quite a bit smaller than the City, so it'd be hard to do that. City's of the right market cap sort of category. So, if you had to guess why Buffett sold Wells Fargo completely, is it because of the whole scandal and mm-hmm. everything that happened? Yeah, yeah, I think so. That's crazy, man, because that's a bank that they've owned for quite some time. Yep, and some of the purchases did really well. Some of the other timing, the purchases didn't do well. Kind of an okay investment overall for Berkshire over all those years, but they bought into it at a bunch of different points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, speaking of share turnover, if I could go back to my presentation. Cassandra, B.C., that is at Michael J. Burry okay. on Twitter. He he tweets and then he deletes. Oh, okay. He'll delete the tweet like an hour or so later. But I mm. thought this was interesting because we're talking about share turnover. He said, from top to bottom, Microsoft traded 5.2 times its shares outstanding by 2002, 3.3 times by 2009. And then he compares it to where we're at today, only about 0.5 times have traded. Amazon traded 5.7 by 2002, 6.6 times by 2009, and 0.9 times so far. JP Morgan traded three times by 2002, 5.9 times by 2009, and about 0.7 times so far, etc. Enough takes time, which I thought was interesting because like this, the move of things and how, I guess you could say like the excess drains out in the market, mm-hmm. a lot of times that takes time. And there's a lot of people that I think forget that. You go back to 2020 when we had the COVID crash and just how quickly things rebounded in the market. Um, I thought that was interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that? No. No thoughts on that. Okay. 
So another thing that was current in the market, have you been following the whole JetBlue thing? Is this a potential ARC? We've been talking yeah, a lot about that. ARCs lately. There's you know, a lot, right? So, you know, because you have huge spreads yeah, on are. Activision Blizzard, um, on, uh, on a Spirit. Let's put it that way. So Activision, Spirit, and uh, if we do the targets, Activision, Spirit, and Twitter all have very large spreads with suspicion that deals won't go through and stuff, but not with a lot of belief that the deals are crazy valuations. Somebody said on Twitter, they asked if we could go through more special situations. And a few people were like, they they have the past couple of podcasts. They've talked about Twitter. They've talked about Activision. I'm like, here we are. Now we're talking about JetBlue. And, and these deals are so big too that it does make me wonder if something is unusual about why the spreads are so big for some of this. Um, so what does that mean? Unusual how? Um, oh, spreads aren't normally this big. It, I mean, the, you know, to say that they're pricing in that a deal won't happen is, is, um, is, uh, you know, when we talk about something like, say, Activision or, or, or Twitter is a good example. I guess that's it's an easier one mathematically for people to think of. Um, that is a gigantic spread for a uh, deal unless you're really certain that it's not going to happen. Dude, the ARB guys in Twitter had to have gotten smoked so far. Um, well, what's the price versus where it started? I mean, so you're basically... We're back to... Before it was announced, right? This is like right here. Yeah, right when... I believe it was announced. Yeah. I mean, Activision uh, has been back to about where it started out. Um, you know, in, in terms of you could have bought before the deal was an, announced. And um, now they were working on the deal, presumably at lower prices, you know. Um, so that's part of it. There you go. Mm -hmm. And what is it for $95 a share? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That spread is just huge. Mm-hmm. So these are very large and they're also very big deals. It's very easy to um, trade the stocks. You know, when we talk about other sorts of things, we mentioned like, you know, Cambria or Hunter Douglas or whatever. There's a reason why there's a spread in, in things like that, or there even wasn't much of a spread, but why you'd think there'd be, why it would seem really obvious there'd be a higher offer, but people might not be buying it. It's just totally illiquid. And super illiquid stocks may sometimes attract investors in them but they don't attract people who are trying to do arbitrage stuff. So that's in very big stocks that are very liquid. That's why they do it. Do you have any thoughts on Twitter? I mean, so now just to update you because you are, I don't know how much you follow the whole Twitter thing going on right now. Elon said that the acquisition is on hold. Right. Because he doesn't believe that bots represent 5% of the company. Now right. he signed a definitive agreement and he did waive due diligence rights and all that sort of stuff. And now he's openly doing this in public. I mean, I guess if you were his lawyers, I mean, on one end, you'd probably love it because this is going to be a huge thing. On the other end, you're probably like, Elon, what the hell are you doing? Um, I mean, he was at a technology conference yesterday, the All In Summit, basically talking openly about this. Mm -hmm. This is a That's crazy to me. That is insane to me why just because he's openly talking about the twitter acquisition they're not close on it he mm. tweets uh, and is saying this is on hold right he signed a definitive agreement he mm -hmm. waived due diligence 
He, yes, now his argument is that the he problem was, is see this is the issue for Twitter. I, you know, the issue is that this is with Elon Musk, who's going to talk in public about it and stuff. That was always going to happen. So you knew that when sure. they started doing this. The problem for Twitter is the due diligence stuff doesn't matter because they include information about this, as do other online companies, in their filings, and they're probably not accurate. And it's known that probably Twitter, Facebook, these companies put stuff in the filings that's probably not correct. That's what his argument is. And that's He's a pretty serious I was going off issue. their public filings. Right. And now someone else could say, well, everyone knows that it's this has been questionable. Um, yes, you can't that you can't really rely on what's in the public filings. He said he's not worried that he buys a company and bots represent, you know, like a little bit more than 5% or 10%. Mm-hmm. He said that he's worried that he acquires a company and bots are actually like 80% of their user base. There are so many bots on Twitter. So many bots. Yes. Even we get so many people that DM, right. fake accounts, respond to just different things. And I'm like, this is clearly a bot. I just block them. Yeah. Now it's, you know, this gets very complicated. Twitter allows um, automated stuff, right? So first of all, in theory, a bot is not, not allowed by Twitter. Secondly, some things that people think um, are not real are in fact duplicates of other things that are the same person, but are real. I mean, this happens with other things, Facebook and stuff. It's not just that they're fake accounts. It's that people are have multiple accounts and they're sometimes getting rid of someone's intended to be genuine account and keeping the one that isn't real or that they didn't intend to be real. Um, and I'd see the same issues here. I doubt that they can measure it that, all that well. But I also should say from an advertiser perspective, because people always argue, well, that's the issue for Twitter and that um, like Elon Musk needs to know because otherwise he doesn't know what the value is to advertisers. That's what he said. He's like, if this business model is entirely on advertisers, right? How do you know? Yes, but the only reason that people use Facebook for advertising and stuff, if for you know companies, is because they can actually measure the results. They're not going off. They're not trusting that Facebook is correct in what it says. I mean, for newspapers, for a long time, have had things where they have very incorrect circulation numbers. This goes back decades. Local newspapers have had very inaccurate circulation, paid circulation stuff. Why do advertisers not really care? Uh, they don't care because it's very easy to say, let's just run the ad in Seattle. Don't run it in Portland. Uh, have a uh, company that does um, research on consumer stuff on actual shopping. Measure the result in the two markets. And then we see how much sales it drove. What matters is how much sales it drives, not how many people saw it. You know, that's true for all kinds of advertising. So although they talk about, you know, Super Bowl ads, how many people watched it, the ratings that they have for it, you know... <laughs> I mean, you could programmatically insert things into Spotify stuff and say, how many people did you reach? You could reach a huge number of people. It won't move any needles, and they know that, and so they won't pay for it. So I'm sure if you're running a Twitter campaign for as a major company, um, you're going to do research that's going to show you what the effects of that is. And um, that may be part of the reason that Twitter doesn't have a lot of revenue, you know, rel- relative to what it says is its base of users. Uh, why I can't monetize it that well is because maybe the ads aren't very effective. They might not be effective because there's bots. They might not be effective for lots of other reasons. A lot of people have used sort of the compared it to it's like buying a house, waiving your appraisal rights, 
and then finding out that there's potentially a ton of termites in it. But that's why it's been sort of a well, hot, hot topic. I mean, I part of me kind of wonders if he doesn't want the deal to go through. He had an excuse to sell like what six billion of Tesla stock without mm -hmm. crashing Tesla. Right. And there's uh, like, was this a, a way sort of like a 40 chess move to free up some liquidity in Tesla without. And he also put the company in play. If he really cares about free speech and stuff like that, then someone else could take out the company. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so now that the company had much in the way of defenses against anything anyway, but um, it, it certainly may have a hard time continuing as an independent entity. Do you think a lot of social media companies, they don't want to put out the real bots? Uh, the real amount of bots because a they don't know and b I have a, they do know and they just don't want to cleanse it and have it all out in the marketplace at this point. I have a th so all these companies put out information that's incorrect and that's to some extent known to be incorrect. It gets repeated everywhere and that's wrong. I mean, we're in podcasting things. We know that Apple has very incorrect data on podcasting stuff. There's better data kept by other people about it, uh, but because it's Apple, people will say go with what they mm -hmm. you know them as the definitive source even though in some cases we know that they're counting duplicated things and so like that and then other things solve for that um so i have a suspicion with twitter based on some replies from the ceo that the company so the real this is tricky but i think the likely answer is that the company will hit a number that's like five percent or something based on how it chooses to measure how they calculate it well i think it's worse than that i mean my guess is yeah i think it may even be a target that they want to have less than five percent and then they have a method for determining how uh for checking what this is which probably involves humans but may also involve other sorts of things and um if you don't have an objective method that's being used at different companies and you have a target that you have that you want to hit, then you may hit that target. This is true for lots of companies. You know, if we all use the same, whatever, net promoter score, something that's standardized between companies and someone else applies it, then there's some reliability in using that figure or you have someone else doing surveys for you. But if you come up with a method and that method may be changing all the time, and I suspect Twitter probably is. So they probably have not consistently used the same method for determining um, the percent that are bots, even from quarter to quarter, year to year. It probably involves a bunch of different statistical techniques that they use and different approaches. The sample sizes have probably changed over time. Um, different things that they've used. They probably use subjective parts to it where a human makes a dis decision on whether this is or isn't a legitimate account, things like that. And um, if they have a known target that they're trying to hit, then they may come up with that target no matter what. So it's fine. I mean, that's what a lot of companies do. Um, it may be helpful for them to measure it in some ways. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not the best way of doing it. Turning it over to someone else to do the measurements is the correct way to do it, but companies don't want to do that. Um, I'm sure they'll argue that they can't do it anyway, but it's not really true. But they can't do it for privacy reasons and things like that, but it's, that's not true. Um, so, you know, I don't think that we will get an accurate answer for that for any, uh, for any company. Yeah, maybe Twitter won't take that route as well, so the deal will just be on hold forever. My whole biggest gripe with it is 
I like Elon, but I just don't think you should be able, I mean, this will just prove that like he's bigger than the system. And I don't think any person should be bigger than the system. And there's a lot of people listening that have followed Tesla over the years and probably say, uh, hello, of course he's bigger than the system, everything that has happened. But I don't know. I just don't think he should be doing this in public like he is. Well, if you offer to buy a company, you don't, you pay a breakup fee for it or a whatever. Billion. Yeah. Pay a billion. He sold Tesla for 6 billion. Move on with it. Yeah. And you know, in all sorts of industries and things, people do that all the time. They pay 10% of something to have an option on something they never intended to exercise it. I mean, quite frankly, I think Twitter is in a good position. Okay. So he pays them a billion. Maybe they sue him for some more stuff and they go back to hopefully fixing their company because all their dirty laundry is aired out now. Yeah. Maybe there'll be a new level of accountability that comes in. I don't know. I mean, to me, you ought to think somebody else will come in and be interested in maybe acquiring Twitter. I don't know. But right, their dirty laundry's been aired out. Well, if people thought that that was true, then uh, you'd think the price would be a lot higher. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if traders thought that was true. And that's true for each of these cases. If they thought there was any realistic hope in the case of Spirit um, or Activision, Especially because, as you can see, if you were in these deals, um, I mean, during the same time, what, the S&P 500 is down 20% or something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know? So, like I said before, it, it's something that's fairly uncorrelated. Not totally uncorrelated. I mean, probably the value of Twitter to a lot of people is down um, a lot, you know, even since the deal. Well, I don't remember the date when he did talk about the deal. But um, financial conditions have tightened a bit for doing deals. I think we're, like, right... I think this was the spike. So I think we're like right where he announced it. Yeah. Well, I think that surge in volume is probably associated with yeah. it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when when was that? That was late. Looks like April, beginning of April. Okay. Ish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know. End of March. Yeah. So I don't know how much, you know, prices have changed for any of these kinds of companies. Twitter doesn't really make meaningful amounts of money. It makes some money. But um, it's basically not that different than like... Uh, uh, profitless um, tech company that's that's quite large, you know, and they've come down in value by a lot, a lot more than Twitter has. He was able to sell some stock in Tesla without so crashing what, the company. And so, what do you mean by that? That was the justification for doing it? No, but I'm just saying, from his perspective, not saying that's why he went I mean, through he this sell- with the intention of backing out. But an added benefit is that yeah, he was able to liquidate a ton of capital. Without, because no, I mean, of course, look, like people on Twitter talking about it, they don't make up the whole market for Tesla, but everyone's like, okay, if you sell some Tesla, if it'll make you more liquid so you could do this transaction with Twitter. So from his perspective, he was able to sell some stock in Tesla at insane valuations, which by the way, he probably knows is insane. And the stock didn't really... Hasn't really, I mean, sure, it's gone down a little bit, but it's not like it's gone catastrophically down if you were to just sell to take some chips off the table. I hate yeah. using that term, but. Yeah, I don't know his reasons for doing it, you know, since the, the beginning that we talked about it. Um, I think of the deals, Twitter's the one that's the hardest because I'm not sure if the value of Twitter might be a lot lower than um, to someone else, right? So it doesn't compare to Spirit and um, uh, Activision that way. But I do understand his argument, though, of, hey, I relied on their public filings, and I think their public filings are inaccurate. 
Yeah. Dramatically inaccurate, potentially. Let's take it to the mat and find out. I can understand that, but. Well, the the ultimate argument is. I don't know how much of that has changed since signing the definitive agreement. He probably knew all this going into it, I'd imagine. But whatever agreements you sign and everything, if there's no serious offer against you, you have a lot of freedom in terms of negotiations. I mean, the thing with like Activision or Spirit or whatever is that real, you know, with Microsoft is um, realistically, there might be a lot of other people who were interested. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of danger that you might have to sweeten a deal or that if it, you couldn't be willing to back out of that, that, that something else could happen. You might want to stop a competitor from taking over a company. A lot of people probably take a look at a company. In situations like that, it becomes an attractive sort of prize to have. Um, if that's not the case with Twitter and he was the only realistic possibility for them, um, then, you know, we're just talking about like whether he has to pay a breakup fee or something. Yeah, billion. What's a billion to him? It's lunch money. Right. And it might be worth it to see if they'll say, okay, let's do it at a lower price. Mm-hmm. So before we jump into JetBlue and Spirit, just to give a background, and if you think this could be a potential ARB. Spirit previously rejected a takeover offer from JetBlue uh, favoring an earlier deal to merge with Frontier, which we did speak a little bit about on the podcast. Um, now JetBlue is going directly to Spirit's shareholders. They are going hostile um, uh, to offer all cash of $30 per share, which is a 60% premium to the Frontier transaction. Um, and that they did say they'd be willing to go to $33 per share if, I guess, Spirit provides some additional information that JetBlue wants. Uh, currently, the value of Frontier's cash and stock uh, for each share of the discount carrier on Monday was recently at $19.48. So this is a pretty big tran- uh, premium right. to where it's currently trading. So we mm-hmm. can look at Spirit right now, if I can type. And nineteen dollars and sixty three cents. Yeah. So you're and not. They're, they're offering thirty dollars all cash mm-hmm. or potentially thirty three dollars. Except, except, so you know, Twitter, the board is saying shareholders should vote for the Elon Musk deal. Here, uh, the board is telling them to vote against the uh, higher offer. So how does that work when this is an all cash offer? So the current shareholders are mm-hmm. going to have nothing to do with the merged company. So what's the better outcome for the current shareholders? It would be $30 a share. Yes, if the deal But they're recommending close. not taking that. The argument that you, they usually will always make is that the deal is more the lesser value deal is more certain to close and that if it doesn't close then our stock could fall by who knows how much and everything could be a disaster. Is that very convincing in these cases? We can look at quick FS and C. Yeah, let's um, look at quick FS and C. What okay. do you want to get? Chaplin? Well, we can start with Spirit. Spirit. You ever flown Spirit? No. I have before. I just fly Southwest. That's, yeah. That is true. You did fly American to Omaha. That was my choice. That's, yeah. that's, what, that's what Andrew <laughs> Kuhn always flies. All right. Uh, okay, Spirit Airlines, quickfs.net. If you do sign up, tell them you came from Focus Compounding. What do you want to see? The balance sheet? Income statement, what? Uh, yeah, so if, if we look based on past numbers and things, uh, obviously not not expensive, right? No. At all. 
Um, so you have the long-term average uh, uh, operating margin. Um, now they've not generated a free cash flow, but the long-term average operating margin, you're getting close to 15%, something like that. Um, and yet your price to sales, you know, is at, you know, um, uh, one times or whatever. And that's not like an unusual sales level. Um, so pretty cheap that way. You could look at other measures. It's hard to evaluate without knowing all the things about their balance sheet and stuff, things like price to book and stuff. They can be very misleading at airlines. Um, but EV to sales and things like that will be much more accurate. And it doesn't look expensive. Okay. We can look at JetBlue. I've never flown JetBlue. Mm-hmm. So um, we can look at their... Um, so this is what I thought we would see. They would seem, if we put aside the issue of COVID and say that happened for two years, mm -hmm. capable of, you know, in a normal market, being able to finance a deal like this. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Not that the deal's small. It's not. No, I mean, um, what was the market cap of Spirit? Two yeah. billion? Yeah. 2.5 billion enterprise value. It's very big. And so JetBlue, they have a 3 billion market cap or 3.7 billion yeah. enterprise value, but looks like just eyeballing it from 2017 to 2019, maybe a normalized operating profit is yeah. like what, 850 million ish, 800 million. Now the Fed is tightening. Financial conditions are getting worse. Uh, that is usually where deals fall apart and where you can't get financing, especially can't get hostile financing. So a lot of deals, the spreads may be bigger and people may be afraid of things for that reason. That might happen in other environments too. That's something to keep in mind. Um, you know, Buffett financed some friendly deals um, during times of a lot of stress because there were deals that were going to happen and then they um, need, wanted to close anyway. And so they went to Berkshire. You know, there were a couple of those. He did that with Dow, um, Mars, uh, Wrigley. So maybe a normalized operating profit for Spirit, maybe like four hundred and change, four hundred twenty-five million, and then JetBlue, we say mm -hmm. like eight hundred something million. So you could could you see them taking on a good amount of debt, being able to support like three times, two to three times to do an acquisition like this? I don't know because I don't know things about leases and stuff like that. So it's really hard to tell. It, it's Pretty dangerous putting on debt on an airline. Um, it's been proven many times over. <laughs> well, I mean, just if 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 the um, if the cycles kind of coincide for any reason, mm -hmm. then you have a bit of a problem. Um, so that's hard. I think there's also an added thing here with these three airlines that we're talking about. I'm not 100% sure, but I think there may be some added uh, urgency with it because there may be the feeling that. Uh, you will be allowed, any two of these companies will be allowed to merge with each other, but other airlines won't be allowed to merge with each other. So while larger airlines might be willing to buy any of these, they really would have trouble getting the deal done. And they're not going, and if you're the one who doesn't get to pair up here, you're not, you're never going to get a chance to be acquired by the two that do pair up or to acquire them or anything like that. So because of antitrust issues? Yeah. Got it. That'd be the fear. I don't know if it's realistic or not. Um, yeah, but it doesn't always turn out to be the case. Um, 
you know, uh, but I, I think that that is a realistic fear. That's a, yeah, I think that may be driving part of it. So what are your thoughts on this? So you have said your favorite ARB situations are ones where you feel like somebody could come and pay a higher price than the current market and the situations where you would be happy owning the business, even if it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on Spirit? I don't know if I want to own an airline. So I think Spirit and Activision are, um, both of them are, are very attractively priced from the perspective of um, possible takeover by people in the industry. But uh, to be fair, in both cases, I think there's serious um, belief that regulators and not just regulators, but that these are politically sensitive topics. I mean, you wouldn't think normally that Activision would be a politically sensitive topic. It's more Microsoft, but um, stuff that happened in Activision plays a part in it. Um, but certainly airlines are always a politically sensitive topic. Even little spirit airlines merging with little JetBlue or little Frontier? I, I don't think they should stop smaller players from from merging together. Um, when there's already several larger ones mm-hmm. in an industry like this, I, I feel the same way in telecom. And eventually, in telecom, they allowed um, third or fourth place ones to merge together to be a more viable um, competitor to two that were already much bigger in size. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So, what's on most people's minds nowadays? Um, we could go back to the presentation. Uh, is profitable growth companies or unprofitable growth companies and the differences between the two. Okay. Um, we have an email from somebody. Again, email me at andrew at focuscompound.com and we will pull uh, some emails and use it for content. It's a great way to do it. And sometimes it's better to email as opposed to Twitter. I uh, put the subject podcast, Andrew at focuscompound.com. So this question says high price of sales, 10 plus with promising future and strong moat. As Jeff said in the latest episode, he thinks that a price of sales of 10 should be the maximum in almost any circumstances. And I would agree personally. However, so we talked about before, how sometimes people, mm-hmm. they'll be like, I agree. I understand it, but right. they, they just can't help themselves. Right. And there are cases. There are cases. Of course, with any rule that we're going to come up with. Number one rule of the rules is knowing when to break the rules. Right, exactly. Buffett has said that uh, that the best investments that he's made is when the numbers say almost not to make them. Mm -hmm. And people have heard that. I think the part that gets overlooked with that, right, though, is Buffett has usually sticks so much to not overpaying for something. That if he can convince himself, I'm probably overpaying, but I want to do it, then that's why it's such a good deal. You know, like that he, so if he's basically going to br- seemingly break a rule, um, then there's a really good reason for it. And so that may be the case with the, any of these things. If there's one time that you want to break that rule and you believe in strongly, it may be a sign that you understand something about that situation that's, you know, unique about it. It could be. And the second half of that quote was, because you love the business so much. Right. Well, that would it's be Buffett's quote. That, yeah, that's, that's obviously the only reason why you would do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So back to the email. He said, however, I've been sucked into a sin stock, B2B online, casino provider, Evolution. He gives a ticker, which has one of the highest margins in all of the businesses listed worldwide. And its revenue is growing rapidly. 
I've been playing their live casino games and I'm fairly confident that their product is the best on the market and most liked overall among players, which means online gambling providers choose them over their competition more often than not, including opening US markets. What are your thoughts about these kinds of high price of sales stocks in general? Are you willing to make exceptions for the 10 times price of sales rule if the stock seems promising? I'm trying to think of a case where I would ever buy something at more than 10 times sales, you know? Um, we can look at this one, right? Yeah, this is through over-the-counter markets, but... Okay, so there, some of the numbers may be weirdly currency skewed and stuff, things, currency yeah. and, and other things about... Think, what is it? What's their currency? Swedish kroner? Is that where the company is Stockholm, listed? I believe. Yeah, okay. Then Something yeah, like that. that's okay. what it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm assuming, because I'm assuming that's what the company reports, in, but we don't actually know that, right? Does it... Yeah, and this just because everything in U.S. dollars is this is the listed one in, over the mm -hmm. over the counter. Yeah, um, so yeah, revenue growth is very high, and um, operating margins are terrific. In fact, some of the best we've ever seen. So to compare, like we've talked about over the counter markets, um, I don't know. People probably know Facebook, things like that. Uh, th that's where the margins of this company were a couple of years ago before COVID. Right, if I'm reading this right, yep, they were 40, 35, 40%. high 30, low 40s. Yep, now they've expanded to being 50, 60 percent. Um, you know, uh, before taxes and stuff. So, obviously, some of the best margins that you'll ever find. So, that would justify very high price to sales, right? So, very, very high margins would be a justification possible for that. Um, so you know, in theory. If you thought something was always going to have a 60% operating margin, um, then a price to sales of 10 for that company isn't different from a price to sales of um, of one for a company with a 6% operating margin, which is more like maybe Walmart in its best day of the last, I don't know, 15 years or something. So this would, um, you know, that's the first point that would justify it. And it has had very high operating margins for a very long time. Now, there's a combination here that's very concerning. It's not impossible. I mentioned Facebook and it happened at Facebook. But, you know, economic theory would say if you have very big margins and very high revenue growth, the durability of your, your business is in serious doubt because you should have everyone in the world trying to compete with you. The only possible justification is somehow you sunk a lot of money in up front or something else that's causing some gap between you and others that can't be closed after the fact. But usually... Very high margins compared with very fast revenue growth uh, does attract really tough competition. And that's kind of always my concern with Magic Formula stuff is that it turns up a lot of companies that might look good on Magic Formula, um, but it's going to fall apart. You know, it's, it's the reverse of a wide moat thing. It's something that's attracting a lot of competition, doesn't have a means to defend itself from it. We don't know qualitatively here. The email basically said that they have the best offering, you know, which maybe, uh, which would probably be true if they have the results that we're seeing here, but it probably also means that everyone's trying to come out with a better offering. Um, so do you think it's tough when it's internet related things like this, because you could take a lot of capital and a bunch of engineers and build something. I don't want to call it on a whim, but we're not talking about like a lime quarry here or a casino um, that has some sort of regional moat to it. Sure, right. That's the only reason why the revenue growth is so high, right? That I kind of I, I tend to prefer uh, situations in which your revenue growth is a lot slower, 
operating margin is big like this, although usually not as big as this, um, because you can figure out why it's defensible. Basically, it's defensible because although there's huge profits there, it's hard for someone to take you on at, say, that location or something because you're already there. And why would they? Why would um, someone compete with you, driving down both your returns? Why would they get permission to do it? All those sorts of things. So when we talk about like a co-part or something, they combine an online marketplace sort of thing, but they combine it with some offline stuff, which is how they start in the beginning, which is really has a lot of advantages in terms of local advantages and stuff. Um, so really it's a competition thing. It's an industry thing for you. Yeah. But look, Facebook continue, you know, Google and YouTube, Facebook, eBay, there's a bunch of different things that from very early on, um, were successful, had, had a moat and continued to grow for a long time. And it was, very difficult for anyone else to catch up to them. So it's not unheard of. And to be clear, I mean, you would like to buy something at a few times price of sales and you just experience such high revenue growth and operating margin growth that the market puts a higher multiple on it. It's just if you were looking at it with a fresh set of eyes, you would probably never buy a company for 10 times sales. Yeah, so... I mean, because you're saying, oh, you would want less revenue growth. A lot of people may be listening. Why would you want less revenue growth? Really, you're just saying that that revenue growth is sort of the um, the after effect of the business and the industry that it operates in, which could attract different sorts of competition. Yeah. I mean, the, the problem is if you have very high revenue growth is that you presumably have lots of new customers. Um, lots of new customers are very dangerous because they tend to be easy to take, uh, a new business to take. And so it allows others to get established competing with you. It, I mean, the problem that you have, uh, this is similar with the margin thing, right? So let's say you have 60% margins or something. Presumably, if you had a ton of competition, you might have 6% margins. We don't know. Um, it could be really bad. So you can only have these margins and these growth rates if you're succeeding really well against the competition in the sense that it's very hard for the competition to um, take any business away from you. And then I just don't know the details about this. Um, it would be hard to, um, it'd be hard to evaluate, but there are examples of companies that grew really fast. Um, usually, it would be you have some sort of moat or something. And then the industry that you serve is just growing that fast. And so, you know, uh, operating systems, Microsoft, whatever, right? It just ends up growing so fast, your end market there, um, that you don't have to do a lot. And you're basically holding a lot of your market share, and that's all that's happening. The market is growing that fast. Um, so, you know, that kind of thing, I suppose, could happen. I can't think of a lot of cases where it could happen. It might be happening here. I don't know. I don't know what it is about their offering um, that it can be replicated by others. Well, how many people can replicate it? Could this be a regulatory thing? Online gambling? No, it doesn't sound like it from this description. Interesting. I mean... There are some things we could think of that would be, I, so a lot of these things, why would your, why would your margins be so big and stuff like that? Um, 
So margins can be competed away in a few different ways. In some industries, you're not going to have very wide margins because you have things with suppliers and customers that are going to cause the problem. But there are other industries in which because of the product that you're making, um, you actually would be able to have incredibly high operating margins if you didn't compete with anyone. So it's really just rivalry that's driving it down. That's what I meant with like operating systems. Operating systems is a good example that way. You could have incredibly big um, operating margins because the truth is that it's not a very big expense and it's critically important for the people using it. Uh, it's a tiny expense 